There are two dilemmas that rattle the human skull. How do you hold on to someone who won't stay? And how do you get rid of someone who won't go? From Pod 617 Productions, it's Shine On, a presentation of Berkman, Botker, Newman, and Shine. Now here's your host, attorney Evan Shine. Episode number 20 of the Shine On podcast, I'm Evan Shine. My guy, producer David Yaz is with us. David, how are you? I'm pretty good. If my voice sounds a little raspy, it's because on the way back from a Las Vegas trip, I connected in Dallas and spent eight wonderful hours in the Dallas airport. And may I say, with all professional uh, touch, screw you, American Airlines. (laughs) (laughs) Dave, I'll tell you what, better you than me. And and look, I can't believe I'm saying the summer is winding down. And Dave, can you believe we're on episode number 20? I can't believe it. I want to pop some champagne. And uh, maybe we will pretty soon. Maybe we will. Absolutely. And Dave, where has the year gone? And wow, does time fly here on the Shine On podcast when you are having fun? And that fun continues today with episode number 20. We have a really terrific show, a great guest, and a fun docket segment. That's right. The first ever divorce movie version of the docket is coming up. We are going to break down and discuss just a few of the many divorce movies out there. Some of the most talked about, the most relatable and some movies that would just make you laugh. But all the movies touch on different and important legal issues, divorce, custody, litigation, mediation, and so much more. And following the docket, we'll be joined by leading psychologist Daphne DeMarneff, author of the absolutely terrific book, The Rough Patch, Marriage and the Art of Living Together. If you want to know the secret on how to stay out of my office and the keys to a healthy marriage, this is the episode for you. As the world continues to reopen, back to school, back to work, life as we have become used to over the past 18 months is changing yet again. And a big part of this change will be family dynamics. And as I've said before on the podcast, we're really going to see the impact, the domino effect of the pandemic on marriages and relationships. The stress of the past 18 months and the correlating strain on marriages and impact on couples, we're going to start to see it. And when I see people in my office speak to people for the first time, it's often too late, too late to save a marriage, too late to make positive changes, too late to work on and improve the course of your marriage for the better. Minds, they're usually made up. But what if you knew the secret on how to get through the rough patches in your marriage, how to understand them, how to see them coming, and most importantly, how to address them before it's too late? We are going to get the answers to these questions find out what every couple needs to know about marriage before time do not, and so much more. Coming up at the other side of this week's docket is my interview. The featured guest this week on episode number 20 of the Shine On podcast, psychologist and author Daphne DeMardeff. This is an interview you're not going to want to miss. All right, counselor, as you mentioned, very special edition of the docket. Are you ready? Let's do it. Let's do it. And now. Let's see what's on the docket. All right. As promised, between Evan and I, we have selected four exemplary clips from movies that deal with the topic of divorce, kind of different aspects of divorce. 
First one comes from Mrs. Doubtfire. That's uh, in case you missed it, and you probably didn't. You've probably seen it. But from 1993, starring Robin Williams and Sally Field as a divorced couple. And uh, this is, Evan, do you want to set this one up, actually? Because it's it is the end of the movie. It's the end of the movie. And look, Dave, picking which clip to talk about from Miss Doubtfire, it, it, it wasn't an easy task because this entire movie has so many moments, so many parts that, you know, touch on different aspects of what I do, divorce, you know, courtroom settings. But it's the ending clip that is the clip that we chose to talk about on the podcast. All right. Let's take a listen. Two months ago, my mom and dad decided to separate. Now they live in different houses. My brother Andrew says that we aren't to be a family anymore. Is this true? Did I lose my family? Is there anything I could do to get my parents back together? Sincerely, Katie McCormick. Oh, my dear Katie. You know, some parents, when they're angry, they get along much better when they don't live together. They don't fight all the time, and they can become better people and much better mummies and daddies for you. And sometimes they get back together, and sometimes they don't, dear. And if they don't, don't blame yourself. Just because they don't love each other anymore doesn't mean that they don't love you. Now, there are all sorts of different families, Katie. Some families have one mommy, some families have one daddy or, or two families. And some children live with their uncle or aunt, some live with their grandparents, or some children live with foster parents. And some live in separate homes and separate neighborhoods in different areas of the country, and they may not see each other for days, weeks, months, or even years at a time. But if there's love, dear, those are the ties that bind. And you'll have a family in your heart forever. All my love to you, Poppet. You're going to be all right. Bye-bye. And off Robin Williams goes with the kids. Sally Field apparently being reasonable and letting him Take the kids. They remain divorced, of course, at the end of the movie. So your thoughts, Evan? Dave, look, Mrs. Downfire, it's a story of a father who would do anything, and I mean literally anything, to see his children. The impact of a parent's lifestyle and how parents can use the litigation process or choices that a parent may make against the other parent when they're in a custody fight. And look, there's a scene we didn't show here, but it's a scene that we've talked about when the judge issues a decision on custody and visitation, the judge references Robin Williams' lifestyle in deciding to award supervised visits. And you see so much in this clip and really throughout the entire movie. And look, we sometimes see judges issue decisions and one parent wins and one parent loses. But even when one parent wins, Sally Field in this clip recognizes that perhaps the judge's decision even though it was in her favor, wasn't best for the kids. And she took it upon herself to determine a different visitation plan for her children and Robin Williams that she thought would be better for the kids. The clip also highlights how different and unique all families are, the structure and the dynamic. And we talk about this in episode 16 with Dr. Jan Blackstone, the founder of Bonus Families. But this is an incredibly important clip. It highlights so much about families, divorce, custody, 
and litigation. Yeah, and also just a nice, poignant description of how a divorce doesn't have to end your life. And I know you don't call yourself a divorce lawyer, you call yourself a family lawyer. And some families, you know, as we're to, led to believe in the movie, are better off divorced. They can still be a family, right? Absolutely, yeah. Dave. You're 100% right. Yeah. All right, the next one, classic film, Academy Award-winning film from 1979, Kramer versus Kramer. So I'm going to play a little bit of this clip, Evan, and I may cut this short, or if you feel like we've heard enough, go ahead and jump in. But here's a bit from Kramer versus Kramer. I don't understand. Well, the problem is, is that your mommy and I both want you to live with us, see? So that's why we decided to go see this man, who, who I told you is the judge, and, and we let him decide because he's very wise and experienced about these things. See, we talked to him for a few days, and, and after that, we asked him what he thought. You know what he said? He agreed with mommy. He thought it would be a terrific idea if, if you move in with her and live there from now on. And I'm really lucky because I get to have dinner with you once a week. And two times a month, we spend the weekends together. What's my bed going to be? Where am I going to sleep? Oh, well, Mommy's figured that all out. You have your own bedroom at her place? Where are all my toys going to be? At Mommy's. We're going to take all your toys over there. If you play your cards out of it, she'll buy you some new ones. Who's going to read me my bedtime stories? Mommy will. You're not going to kiss me tonight anymore, are you, Dad? No, I, w I won't be able to do that. But, you know, I'll, I'll get to visit. It's going to be okay. <laughs> really. I don't like it anymore. What do you mean, if you don't like it? You're going to have a great time with Mom. Really, she loves you so much. Evan, I don't think I can take it anymore. It's <laughs> just, just heartbreaking. No, it's heartbreaking. Look, Dave, while this is a short clip, it is super impactful. First, discussing what's next for children following a divorce or separation, it's never easy. Look, children often have so many questions and then more questions and then questions on top of those questions. Understanding how to try and answer these questions as a parent, going through a divorce, trying to address a child's concerns, fears, nerves about so much. Now and in the future, it's not easy. This scene and conversation is one that could not have been easy for either the child or the parent. And you see it, you hear it, especially given that the judge sided with the mother. But the father presented it as well as you could. And we've talked about before with the divorce doctor, Elizabeth Cohen, and the parenting mentor, Sue Groner, on the impact of divorce on children and how to get through it. The scene also highlights what can happen if you don't settle your case and it's litigated and you leave it up to a judge to decide. This was a litigated custody case and in custody cases that don't get resolved, there can often be an attorney appointed to represent the child, a forensic psychologist and other professionals as well. And other services may be required such as visitation supervisors. But Dave, you're right. This is a heartbreaking moment and it's a moment that, you know, many parents and children go through especially when the children learn of the result or the new living arrangement as a result of the parents' divorce. Yeah, I think this is, the director really doesn't let you off the hook here. He shows you, and but it is, I think, pretty realistic. I mean, I've talked about that I'm divorced and that day when we had to tell the kids was extremely sad. The, kid, the questions my kids had were not quite as heartbreaking as the ones that this little guy delivered. But I'll, I'll say this. The, you know, time has a way of healing these things and putting them in place. My a friend of mine 
who's been divorced for a while and had the unfortunate situation of the wife trying to turn the kid against him. Years have gone by, and he just told us all that he got remarried and that he went to his son, and his son shook his hand and was smiling at him. And so it was like a nice, you know, the, the time does heal it, and if you do things right like this parent, it seems to be. Of course, the movie turns out differently, I think. I haven't seen it in a while, but anyway. All right, I need some tissues. Let's move on to the next movie. <laughs> If it's okay with you. All right. This is a comedy. Some call it the quintessential nasty divorce movie from 1989, War of the Roses. Let's take a listen to a little bit of this one. And by the way, in this scene, Kathleen Turner is in the process of separating from her husband. But if you've seen the movie, you know they pick the unusual situation of remaining in the same house together, even though they are legally separated And in this case, Kathleen Turner is trying to hold a dinner party when her soon-to-be ex-husband, Michael Douglas, interrupts. That's what you're going to hear in this clip. Now, some of the dishes tonight are new. Some, I've no doubt, made for you before. But they are all my favorite dishes, as you are all my favorite clients. (laughs) Hello, darling. Sorry I'm late. Well, I guess I better not sit too close to anybody because I have a bit of a of a cold. Ah, flu! Oh. <laughs> That's doubly disturbing in the age of COVID, right? Now yeah. oh, I guess I'll go in and piss on the fish. Oh. Kathleen Turner follows him into the oh, kitchen. These people are my clients. You are messing with my business. I have the food editor from the post out there. Is everything all right? I would never humiliate you like this. You're not equipped to, honey. He is, in fact, peeing on the fish. Even so soon, baby doll? Huh? A family tiff seems to be developing. I don't know if we should leave, but I definitely advise skipping the fish course. (laughs) Okay. So, bordering on the absurd, but just how low things can sink when... A divorcing couple is at odds. Evan, your thoughts? I think my first thought is I'm officially not eating fish for dinner. <laughs> Maybe but ever look, again. No, never, never again. Yeah. But look, this is exactly why most judges think it's better and will strongly encourage clients to separate and not live together during a divorce. Look, it's often said that divorce attorneys see good people at their worst. And I'm not sure there's a better indicator than this scene right here the emotion, the anger. Look, it causes people to act and behave in a totally inappropriate and irrational way. And look, if you're listening to this clip and you're going through a divorce and you're taking notes on things to do to your spouse, (laughs) I would think again, because behavior like this, it can be considered harassing. It may give rise to an order of protection, police intervention, and criminal and family court orders of protection or a request for exclusive use and occupancy of the residents, given the marital strife that you're witnessing in this scene. The court can also consider behavior like this in any custody litigation. And again, this is a comedy in many ways, but this is the behavior that you don't want to do when you're going through a divorce. It's a black comedy, and I I don't know this, but I have a feeling it was the writer actually based it on actual events and divorces because... It, it seems absurd that someone would come in and pee on a fish. But then again, I'm sure you've heard some pretty ab- absurd things yourself. <laughs> I have. You know, I, I have. I've seen a lot. I haven't had anyone pee on the fish. But, but look, you know, people behave in 
you know, all sorts of ways. Divorce brings out the ugly side in, in people. But again, you know, part of it is, you know, learning how to rise above, get through it, move on and move ahead. So the 2005 comedy Wedding Crashers is probably best known for what the movie purports to be about. And that's Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn being scammers that talk their way into weddings and enjoy food, enjoy drink and meet women. But one of the scenes in the early parts of the movie shows what they do for a living. And they're actually divorce mediators. So we selected this scene from Wedding Crashers. I don't have custody of the kids. You know what? Yeah. I don't get custody. It has been an insane, pathetic joke. But right what now, I've had to go right now she doesn't know where the kids are. Do not talk about me as a mother. At I'm home? so sick to death of you talking hey, about me as a mother and what I've done They're wrong. probably at a firehouse somewhere. She just Do not talk about that. I am yeah. sick of you accusing me of not being a good mother. Seven years I've been There's a good mother. Just remember mother, when we went custody. out. Just remember right how you upturn a bench. Don't you fucking talk about me being a mother. I hate you. Hey, I got an idea. Why don't you just kiss my left nut? I told you this was a bad idea. You know what, Ken? The bad idea would be to let your client walk out of here today and drag this thing out for another year, wasting more time and wasting more money. The only good idea is to let me and John do our job and mediate this thing right here. You want to hear the crazy thing? I know it doesn't feel like it, but we're making progress. Mm -hmm. We settled the deal with the cars. Let's see, that takes us to frequent flyer miles. We're flying. Those are mine. I want them. You know what we're going to do? We're going to split them right down the middle. How'd that be, Mr. Kroger? It would be not good at all. I earned those miles. Yeah, you earned them flying to Denver to meet your whore. Oh, Lord. Well, she's not afraid to express herself sexually, if that's what you mean. She is a stripper, for God's sake. She is not. Her name is Chastity. She is white trash. Same as you. Ill, Billy. That's it. Go comatose for me, baby. You shut your mouth when you're talking to me. Hold it. This is getting confusing. You didn't always hate each other. There had to be some nice moments during the courtship, maybe. Or the wedding. The wedding had to be fun. You, you get the decorations, families coming together. That's a nice moment. What'd you have to eat? Crab cakes. Are you kidding me? Crab cakes? Okay. I do not have a good time eating crab, crab cakes. cakes. I love them. And They're you got phenomenal. a band? Did you have a band? Yeah. Good or bad? Who gives a shit? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's That's good no matter true. what. There's music in you the get air. Them playing, shout, yeah. Hey, a little bit oh, 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 hey, shout hey. now. Jump up and shout now. It's a good time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So we don't have to play the whole clip, but it, but it, <laughs> by the end of the scene, you'll remember, Evan. It works. the The couple calms down, and by the end, things are going so well that the the duo of mediators suggest that. Uh, Maybe they can be given some frequent flyer miles. <laughs> but anyway, so there's an example of mediation for you in film, of course. What do you think, Evan? Dave, look, I can't stop laughing. <laughs> but all kidding aside, look, guest of the podcast, Susan Guthrie, was right when she said any case can be mediated with the right mediator and the right process in place, even the high-conflict divorce. But how about the mediation skills of Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson? And look, I'm not saying go out and hire a mediator who acts like them, but look, it turns out they were the right mediators for this couple, even though they were just on the bit unorthodox side. To me, Dave, the takeaway from this is, look, the session started out with name calling, yelling, fighting, and thinking that there was absolutely no way mediation was going to work for this couple, even with their attorneys in the room. But the conversation was able to be redirected by the mediator to focus on the positives and the importance of bringing closure to the divorce process. And look, let's put aside that Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson tried to redirect the few airline miles 
their way. <laughs> the point is that not every battle is worth fighting over and that even a high conflict divorce is one that can be resolved in mediation. Our featured guest this week on the Shine Up podcast is Daphne DeMarnoff. Daphne is a psychologist and the author of The Rough Patch, Marriage and the Art of Living Together, and Maternal Desire on Children, Love, and the Inner Life. In her clinical practice, she offers psychotherapy to couples and individuals. Daphne teaches and lectures on marriage, couples therapy, adult development, and parenthood. She is a contributing editor at Parents Magazine, and her work has been featured in the New York Times, O, The Oprah Magazine, and on NPR. Her research and scholarly work has been published in professional journals, and she has been quoted in national media outlets such as Time Magazine. Daphne is nice enough to join us. I appreciate the time. How are you? Fine. Thank you for having me. Daphne, when a client is in my office, it's often too late. Too late for many individuals to fix their marriage, too late to change the course of their relationship, the resentment and animosity. For so many people, it's too deep. And the obstacles to open and transparent communication, they're often hard to move. And I hear from clients all the time, Evan, if I knew what to expect in my marriage from the beginning on how to handle certain moments, certain periods, stages and situations in my marriage, the hard times, I may not be sitting across from you right now. So with that as a backdrop, I want to ask you about your terrific book, The Rough Patch, Marriage and the Art of Living Together. Daphne, how does a couple know and identify that they're in a rough patch and it's something more than just an argument or a passing disagreement? Well, there's a lot of different answers one could give to that. But I guess if I were to give a simple first pass at that, it would be if you find yourself getting into the same argument over and over with no movement, no progress, no ability to productively solve the problem. That is your first red flag. Now, I think that this thought must occur to you in your work, for me and mine, that people make often implicit and unconscious bargains when they get together with people to begin with. I just talked to a patient yesterday who said that the man she married from the get-go made every decision, and she felt that meant he was kind of strong and that he would, you know, drive the, the ship of the family. Of course, now there's no collaboration. There's no ability for her to have a voice. And so part of what's somewhat sad and maybe even tragic in our lines of work is that people make these um, decisions and agreements without full conscious awareness that that's what they're doing. That really down the line to be married to someone who never listens to you is going to be a problem. But once you're in the situation, you have to have the guts to have the hard conversations. And I think people get bogged down in anxiety and avoidance and feeling they made their bed. They need to tolerate what's happening. But my view is that marriage hopefully is long and it's going to take a lot of development and evolution and growth. And both people are going to have to be willing to get on board with that and create a different marriage if the first one's not working, you know. And Daphne, you mentioned evolution and growth and couples working through the difficult times. What makes it so hard for people to communicate and to confront issues as they come up in their marriage? Well, I think we have to go back to the families people grow up in. 
because that is where we learn about how to relate in an intimate relationship. Surprising as it may sound, the parent-child relationship is probably the most relevant template when thinking about a marriage. Now, of course, if a marriage falls into a parent-child dynamic, that's a problem in and of itself. But if you think about how you got treated in your earliest relationships, I give people the metaphor of if when you were a kid, you fell off your bike, there's two things your parents need to do to have a healthy response. One is to comfort you and have empathy and say, oh, sweetheart, that looks like it hurts. And the other is to help you solve the problem. Hey, let's go get a Band-Aid. People often grow up in families where they get one, but not the other. And we see this in marriages where people say, I want you to just listen to me and not try to solve my problem, right? Or please stop being so emotional so that we can get to solving the problem. People have an issue with getting overwhelmed or shutting down in the face of having to provide both those things. So that's the emotional history behind this. And what often happens is people do not learn to manage emotions in a healthy way as a child for the kinds of reasons I just alluded to. And so when they're in a conflictual issue, which of course takes effort and pain and persistence and the ability to stick with something until you get through solving the problem, people get overwhelmed or shut down. They start yelling, they start withdrawing. And if you're doing that, you're not actually solving the problems in front of you. And life is filled with problems. If there's money, if there's children, if there's aging, if there's alcohol, life presents problems. And you have to be able to have the hard conversations. And people have an illusion that Things are happy if there isn't any conflict. I'm of the opposite view. You need to have healthy (laughs) conflict, productive conflict that actually helps you solve problems. And that's what people end up avoiding often and until it's too late. And Daphne, you mentioned people feel overwhelmed and at times they'll shut down and they don't necessarily have those hard, meaningful, productive conversations. What are the signs that a couple needs to work with a professional, a therapist, get outside help because either they're avoiding the discussion and conversation or the conversations they're having, they're not productive. Mm -hmm. So there's some statistic, I don't know if it's real, but it kicks around the couple therapy world that people look for couple therapy an average of six years too late. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it. I I, I see it, you know, when people are in my office, that's a statistic I absolutely believe. (laughs) So... One of the things that I think, you know, just like mental illness has stigma in our culture, I think it's really important for people not to feel they've failed if they're looking for help. Getting help is a healthy model in any relationship. When we go back to that falling off your bike example, that's healthy dependency. That's what we all want to have. Hey, I can't solve this on my own. I need help. Now, Couples may differ, and I'm sure you've heard this story too, where one person's like, we need some help. And here I would say the the biggest sign you need help is what I said before, that you keep not being able to get through the tough, that you just end up in the same place over and over, an unproductive place where nothing gets solved. And you keep having the same conflict over and over. So often at that moment, one person will say, hey, listen, we need help. The other one's like, no, 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 we can solve this on our own. I am of the view, this is a value position that I've come to through doing this work for so long. It is not a tenable or valid answer to your spouse to say, we don't have to talk about it. Relationships take talk. And if you're not skilled at talk and you don't know how to talk about your feelings, you need skills 
development. You cannot say, no, why are you making a mountain out of a molehill? I just want to be left alone to read my newspaper and, you know, watch YouTubes. You have to actually come to the table with the, with the um, intention of trying to slog through problems. And often, I think, in relationships, you don't have two parties that are equally on board with that proposition. Daphne, you wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times in 2018. It was titled, The Secret to a Happy Marriage is Knowing How to Fight. Tell us why this is the secret to a happy marriage. Yes. Yeah, so, so the article was about uh, wedding season and, you know, that p- people spend a lot of energy and time trying to sort out their weddings. And that, in the best case, can be a wonderful uh, platform for working out differences, you know, and trying to figure out how you navigate and collaborate different opinions, different choices, different values, different trade-offs. The, the, the kind of conceit of the piece was, you know, if you put that much time that you put into your wedding menu <laughs> into, you know, really thinking about how to, to fight or how to deal with and engage conflict productively, that will serve you well. And, you know, Part of what I talk about there is what I'm talking about here, you know, that it's a lifelong process to be able to hang on to yourself, be aware of your own feelings, and not feel that understanding the other person cancels you out. So hanging on to yourself and listening to the other. Doing these two things at once and feel like, you know, tapping your head or rubbing your stomach. It's a lifelong effort to be able to say, hey, I want to understand you and I want to understand myself and we don't have a solution yet, but it's not you or me. It's not zero sum. It's not your feelings cancel out mine. So I sort of describe that model and, you know, a a short piece that I spend a whole book talking about, that it's really a, a good relationship is one where both people are striving to understand the other person. The last chapter of the book is called Love is a Conversation. And it's because I do believe, and I say this in the piece, that we may fall in love in a rush of passion, but we actually enact love or develop love through understanding and through conversation. And my willingness to really try to understand where you're coming from, even if I can't agree or solve it or fix it, but because I care about you and your feelings, that is the core of a loving relationship. And that's where we hope fights are trying to go. <laughs> you know. There's a lot of stuff that provokes us, and maybe our first reaction is not that skillful or nice, but the hope is through talking, through struggling, you come to an understanding of where the other person's coming from, and that is the basis, in my view, of long-term love. Nathan, you, you have a line at the end of that 2018 New York Times piece that absolutely fascinates me, and it's a line, and you st- you say marriage is an open-ended practice of disentangling misunderstandings. And you go on to say that you hope people think about how they fight and also how they want to talk. Tell us the importance of that and really the importance of communication in a relationship and a marriage. Yeah. So I just want to start here with the individual because the whole book, The Rough Patch, is really trying to balance the individual needs and the couple needs. I'm not a believer that everything is about the couple or about the individual. I think it's both. So I think the first step in improving your couple relationship is working on yourself and your emotional awareness, your awareness of your feelings, 
which again, not everyone grew up in families where people are interested in awareness about feelings. A lot of people grew up with the message, hey, that's not important or sweeping it under the rug or not talking about important things. So this is a true skills development issue. And I think part of it is assessing, where do I come from? Did people talk about feelings? Did they care about feelings? If they didn't, I need to actually work on caring about my feelings and my partner's feelings and living in this zone or this domain of becoming more fluent in knowing and talking about feelings. And that's sort of a paradigm shift for a lot of people. You know, they're sort of feeling like, huh? (laughs) So I would say that to me, that is, I'm, I'm again, this is a value position. I don't believe you can have a relationship that deepens over time and continues to sustain love over time, unless you can communicate in a way. And it's not always, not everybody's as touchy feely and therapeutic jargony as others. But if you can convey that you care about the other person's feelings and want to understand them, that's really basic. So I'm hoping people don't spend a lot of time suffering in fights, but I do believe that the more you learn to talk, and part of that, as I was saying before, is managing yourself in the moment. So I have these three C's I talk about in the book, compassion, curiosity, and self-control. And those are actually the three mental attitudes that I think are your friends when you're trying to talk about a difficult issue. Remember that you have compassion for this person and yourself. Remember you're actually curious what they feel and what you feel without any predetermined value judgments about who's right or who's wrong. And then managing your own self in terms of your activation, how explosive you are, how prone to shutting down you are, that's the self-control piece. So that stuff's hard, you know, especially when it's a very charged, important issue. And I just want to say, I think I say this in the article you referenced to, or maybe not, but, but the idea, like, if you're in a fight, I mean, fights are defined by being unskillful. We all start that way sometimes, but then it's what you do after. How do you apologize? How do you calm down? How do you revisit? How do you repair? So don't get too down on yourself that you lose your cool sometimes. Just remember you have to circle. That's incredibly powerful, incredibly insightful. And I want to ask you because what would your advice be? What would your gift be of marital wisdom? to a couple who's looking to tie the knot and get married. Because what we're talking about, it's real, it's important, it's powerful. It's really how to navigate the many years of marriage and relationships, the ups and downs and the roller coaster. But for people who are in love and they're young, people think marriage may just be, you know, honeymoon and it's not work. So what would the gift of wisdom be to a couple who is just starting out? Yeah. So, you know, there is this kind of idea of marriage as work. And I say in the book, it's not the drudgery of, you know, washing dishes and cleaning closets. It's the work of staying emotionally vulnerable, which is actually enabled through what we're talking about. Confronting things, having the hard conversations and not letting things just become suppressed sources of resentment withdrawing to avoid conflict, and then finding you're becoming less and less close. So this is all in the realm, again, of emotional awareness. And I would see emotional responsibility. And I think, I say in the book, the wonder drugs of a happy marriage are self-awareness and self-responsibility. And what I mean by that is you can have couple A 
and couple B who have the exact same problem. They're struggling with the exact same thing, whether it's addictions or money or you know whatever, in-laws. If in couple A, each person is basically saying, I'm trying to understand you and myself, that's self-awareness. And I understand that I have this impact on you. And I care about that. And I'm sorry when appropriate. And couple B does neither of those things. In couple B, this pro- these problems will proliferate and intensify and possibly explode. In couple A, even though they're dealing with the same things, the self-awareness around how you're having an impact, what your feelings are, and your responsibility to the other person saying, hey, listen, I'm sorry I yelled at you. I was kind of losing my cool there and I, you didn't deserve it. That is truly a difference. So I would say at the beginning, when you're having all these adjustments of, okay, like, are we compatible enough? Or how do we each deal with money? Or what's religion in our lives? Like, those are all practice moments. And I think sometimes people try to tune out difference to maintain a feeling of unity and union and love. And they're worried that difference may doom the relationship. So they sort of fuzz that out and they sort of try to like smooth it out. And I would say the reverse is is the key that people say, hey, listen, how do we deal with conflict well so we can struggle through these difficulties and then kiss and hug at the end of it and be like, we're still close because that is actually going to make for greater love. You know, two individuals who struggle through something and then they feel, hey, we did that. And that actually is bonding. Thank you. I would think having those relationship or really tough conversations early in a relationship, those are the relationship strengthening conversations. They can be incredibly important moments that not only do people discuss the hard stuff early on, but it sets them up for success in their relationship, in their marriage going forward. Because if you're having those tough conversations early on about religion, about children, about money, about expectations, it paves the way for continued conversations, open dialogue and transparency in the years ahead. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't agree more. And Daphne, you mentioned some of the rough patches that people experience in their marriages, in their relationships. You mentioned money, you mentioned addiction, you mentioned in-laws. What have you seen in your practice, in your experience, in terms of the past 15 months, the pandemic, are there any new rough patches, situations that the pandemic has given arise to? Yeah. So I think a huge one is the fact of children not having been in school, that there's more family labor. Now there, there have been pluses for some people, you know, that both people are around more, they can, you know, both contribute more around the home. But I think there's been a huge, stressful, even traumatic experience among some parents of, of school-aged children of being completely tapped out and then getting into struggles around division of labor, which is one of the most stubborn issues in heterosexual marriages. You know, this feeling of the women often feeling they carry the emotional load, the mental map of what needs to happen. Maybe they're more responsible for educating the kids and trying to work at the same time. So that's been a huge source of contention. And I think we can all relate to how the pandemic has sort of been this low level hum of anxiety for everybody and a very disorienting, decentering kind of experience 
And stress and anxiety, we know, always impacts relationships. So there's that. I also think that there's a certain, what, you're still here? You're around again? When do I get to be alone? When do I get to be myself in the world? I think there's been a certain amount of dysphoria and irritation just around the the sheer togetherness factor that this has produced for some people, not to mention the household spatial arrangements, you know, everybody being underfoot, nobody. So I, I think those two things have been really hard on, on couple relationships. And Daphne, I, th- I think as things start to open up around the country and kids are going to be back in school, parents are going to be back in the office full time, we're going to see that change again because everybody's gotten used to living in close quarters or living under one roof where kids are doing virtual schooling, parents are working from home. And I always get asked, Evan, what about the divorce rates? What are you seeing in your practice? And I've been saying that I think we'll see the effect of COVID and the pandemic when things change and people are back living the lives they did before the pandemic, because I think people have gotten accustomed to being together. And then there's going to be that change with everybody back in the office and back at school. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you, you work with couples, after you work with individuals, and you've helped so many people get through these rough patches in their lives. How does someone decide, in your experience, whether they should stay in a marriage or they've exhausted all efforts to work through it, but it's just not healthy anymore to stay in a relationship and their marriage? So I just want to say that that is the topic of one of the chapters in the book. And it's a question that I think about a lot and take very seriously because my belief system, worldview, clinical judgment, whatever you want to call it, is that I'm always holding intention, the needs of the individual to have love, to grow in a relationship and the needs of the couple and family, you know, that people want to have an intact family for their children. They feel they've built this family structure that has its own meaning and value. You know, they feel that maybe their compatibility with this individual is not the preeminent issue. And these are both in some sense, sacred values, you know, family and, and being a loving intact family for children, and then wanting to have deep intimate love. And so I think they're both important. And that is the tragic tension that people are dealing with often. I mean, in those cases where people are being thoughtful and it's not just a mess, you know, people just in a completely uncontrolled sort of emotive place. So I do talk about sort of how do you think about that and how do you balance those off? I would say that in my experience, people who are struggling with certain kinds of incompatibilities and feeling they cannot be close to their partner at age 45 are still dealing with that often at 65. In other words, I think that I do have a lot of people coming to me after this book got published who were, you know, in their 60s and been together for 30, 35 years and basically said, this has never changed. And yet now I feel it's almost too late to leave. So I sort of feel like if you're having these sort of inklings that things are really troubled, take them seriously. It's not like time is going to just heal this. These are pretty deep things that often are contributing to to people's difficulties and incompatibilities. And I think everybody's going to make a different judgment about that. But I think it was Harville Hendricks, who's a famous couple therapist, who said something like, 
work on all the things that make you want to get divorced so that you don't have to get divorced and then get divorced. In other words, there's a lot of internal work around what is it that is making me unhappy? What's mine? What am I contributing to this? And I think of unflinching self-inventory and work on yourself and therapy, hopefully for you yourself to really not project and scapegoat. Because of course, once you're in a couple, you know, there's this handy person to blame for all the problems and we all do it, right? So, so really trying to understand on the couple level and on the individual level, how unworkable is this? What could change? Because often people don't really do the work to try to change it. They just get to an unbearable emotional situation and they're willing to blow the whole thing up. And so the book was really an effort to help people be thoughtful. It wasn't an effort to say you need to stay in this marriage at all costs. It's how do you go through a process of truly being thoughtful about your own contribution to your life satisfaction and fulfillment. And there's, you know, takes two in that to, to, to try to figure that out. But I'm not a partisan on either side of this. I just don't want people to be destructive to their children and themselves in the process of dismantling a marriage. And I think the more thought and reflection and effort you put in, the less likely you are to do that. And Daphne, when people are in my office, I'll always ask, think about this. Think about, is this the path that you really want to go down? Have you exhausted all options? Have you worked with an individual therapist? Have you been to couples therapy, marital counseling? And it amazes me, and at this point in my career, maybe it shouldn't, how many people have not worked on their marriage, worked on their relationship. Are you finding people today are not putting in the work compared to 20, 30 years ago because divorce is not as taboo as it once was and it's an option. And, you know, there's so much out there in terms of living your best life post-divorce, but are you finding people not putting in the work that you talk about in your book that you know is necessary to get through those difficult situations in a marriage? You know, it's so interesting. And I wonder how the slice of people I see and the ones you see are similar and different. I I feel that partly because people in middle age now, and this is anecdotal because I'm not a statistician. This is just me sort of observing culture and who, who comes to my office. But People who are middle-aged now, their parents were part of the biggest divorce boom in American history. And I think that, in fact, many people feel they do not want to inflict that on their children. And yet they may have grown up in families where there was no great role model. So I'm actually very moved at how hard people try to keep it together. And I would say some people leave too early and some stay too long. I mean, I think I see both, you know, situations where I feel there's genuinely an intractable problem that I can't really see changing and people hang on for a lot of different reasons, you know, for practical ones and emotional ones. People, you know, when you marry someone, you become attached to them and whether the attachment is healthy or unhealthy, it is a core, uh, part of your meaning system and your emotional survival system. And so, you know, the attachments can be healthier or not less healthy, but they're still attachments. So I actually am very moved at how hard people try to, to, to keep it together. And I would say, you know, obviously I have a biased sample because they've shown up in a therapist's office, sure. but I, I would say they, they tend to 
take it extremely seriously. And I think you must also encounter people vary a lot in terms of how natively thoughtful they are. I mean, certain people are very impulsive and they just want what they want and they're on to the next thing. And, you know, those people aren't so workable in in my office. (laughs) I see some people who have put in the work and they'll continue to put in the work. And, you know, I, I see people who say, Evan, I want to put in the work, but I just can't get my partner or spouse because it's a voluntary process to join me and feel in a way that's similar to me about getting professional help and working with a couple's counselor or therapist. So sometimes it's the person who I'm speaking with wants to do the work, but it's the partner or the spouse in the relationship where it's not being reciprocated. Right. And I think those people have a difficult choice because often they can only use leverage with that person. I will leave you unless, which is never how you want to approach the collaboration of fixing your relationship, but sometimes that's the only approach they feel they can take. And I would imagine you see people who tried that, didn't work. So now they've said, okay, I can't live this way. And they're moving on. But I believe all that effort and all that work on yourself and on the the marriage creates a model for the children of being a person of integrity who's trying to balance off a lot of difficult choices in the best way they can. And so I really believe that even if the outcome is we can't keep being married, the fact of trying in that way is really important and valuable. Daphne, I encourage all my clients, even if they're not working with a professional or a couples therapist in terms of staying in the relationship or the marriage, even if it's co-parenting and learning how to transition to post-divorce life and you know, really being there for your kids and communication and co-parenting. I encourage so many of my clients to work with a professional, sometimes not even in terms of working on the marriage, but working on their communication because the dynamics are going to change once they separate and move forward. As we finish up on on the Shine On podcast, Daphne, I want to ask you about the impact of a divorce like Melinda and Bill Gates. You were quoted in a Times article, and I want to ask you, did their divorce surprise you? given where they are in life. And there's been a lot of reports that have come out over the past several uh, weeks and, and months, but did their divorce surprise you? Yes and no. I mean, I, I feel, first of all, that people live private lives that we have no access to. And that's what I hear about when they show up in my office. And the, the appearance and the reality are often very divergent. So I'm never surprised by that. That just seems true. I think that, you know, the point of history, I mean, they're sort of like royalty in the sense of, you know, what is it to dismantle this apparatus? It's not simply two people and a house, you know, so, so there's always the question of how did they weigh all that? You know, it's sort of interesting to just think, okay, they're sort of dismantling a dynasty. (laughs) You know, it's not just like, you know, Joe and Jane Doe down the block. No, it's true Um, with the companies and the philanthropies and the organizations. It was absolutely. Yeah. But I, but I guess I do think that people at their point after all the history and raising the kids, you know, we don't live in a society where people are dying at 40 We don't live in a highly religious society where people feel marriage has a a sort of sacred value that transcends the emotional well-being of the parties involved. And I think it's completely um, common for people in their 
50s to be kind of 60s to be kind of like, okay, well, I may have 20 or 30 years left. Is this how I want to live them? And hopefully to have a fairly amicable agreement that it isn't. I mean, of course, life's complicated and people have long histories and old wounds. And so who knows what's really going on there? But I guess I would hope that each person feels good about this choice for their future rather than I've been hurt by you so many times I can't bear it anymore, which is also a healthy choice. But, you know, I I guess it doesn't surprise me, except maybe insofar as it takes some guts to to have such a public dissolution of a marriage. Daphne, I'm seeing more and more couples and individuals in their 50s and 60s get divorced. And you mentioned that people are living longer. And I'm fascinated by that link in terms of what's called the great divorce. And so I want to ask you, are you seeing in your practice more and more people who are perhaps older in life making the decision, the difficult decision, to separate, to pursue something different because they're living longer? Are you seeing that in your practice? Yeah, I can't say I do just because I don't have that big a sample. I mean, I know the science does suggest that, and it makes perfect sense, given, given demographics, given gender equality, given you know, women having more resources than they did 40, 50, 60 years ago. You know, there is an interesting intersection here with the literature on female development, menopause, et cetera. There's sort of this idea that, you know, after the child rearing years and women moving into a phase of life where they're like, is, is, am I really about taking care of people anymore? <laughs> or is that really my agenda? And, you know, one thing people say about these, you know, men and women at older ages is men are very likely to want to couple up and women are like, hey, I'm sick of doing people's laundry. So there is a kind of shift around emotional need. And I think women often get a lot from their female friendships they're not really looking for a, a kind of dependent romantic relationship in the same way men seem to persist in looking for that. So I think there's a lot of sort of personality development over the lifespan issues that get going there, as well as just, you know, more economic equality and so forth. I guess I would say, I mean, most people I see are between their late 30s and probably their late 60s. That's sort of this chunk of people who tend to see me. And I would say that the issues, again, like I said, that people are having at 40 are the same ones at 60. It's just that the cost benefit has changed. Maybe you have children, don't have children at home anymore, but maybe you also feel, do I really want to start a new life at 60? So, I mean, it just keeps sort of shifting in people's calculations, but I do understand that the demographics and the data does suggest that there is, you know, a fair amount of late life divorce. And I'm fascinated because the people who you see in your practice who are in their 60s, if there were issues in their 40s or even 30s that were addressed, do you think they would be separating and divorcing in their 60s? You know, it's so interesting. And I would love to get, you know, the take of someone who who meets people at sort of the end of the line, because I do think that there are certain incompatibilities between two individuals that have to do with their basic emotional style. For instance, someone who really feels they need affection and warmth in a way that the other person feels like, well, I do all these things for you. What is it that you don't think I'm giving you? Like it's a literally 
a lack. It's like they speak different languages in an emotional sense. Now, when they have young children and they have this structure of a family and there's all these other needs and they get a lot of gratification from their children, that is a kind of workable enough. But when it's like we're alone now and what is there really except, you know, our activities and our shared time and our, you know, then that balance shifts. And that to me is what I see more commonly. In other words, there's something that I would identify as a very basic incompatibility that's never really moved. And now they're just in a different point of, is it worth trying to do something different or not? So, I mean, there's that, those are the ones I think I see in their sixties who are really struggling with this. I don't see it as much as like, gee, we didn't deal with, you know, our problems in year 10 and now they've really just taken over. I think it's more the former is what I see at that stage of life. But that does not in any way discount that if they'd confronted some of this earlier, maybe the person who's not all that warm or loving would have said, okay, I want to work on that for my own benefit because I feel sort of cut off. So I'm going to go into therapy and work on developing some other capacities. So, so, so maybe in that sense, they could have gotten closer in their styles if they'd been working on it all along instead of just kind of fighting over it or avoiding it. Such a brilliant take. Thank you. This was really fantastic. I really appreciate your time. I want to thank you for coming on the Shine Up podcast. Your book, The Rough Patch, you can order it on Amazon. And it's a book that everyone should have in the library and on their nightstand. Thank you again for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Another great show on the Shine Up podcast, episode number 20. It's in the books. Absolutely brilliant stuff and terrific insight from psychologist and author Daphne DeMarneff. Producer David Yaz, what a show, what a docket. The first ever divorce movie-themed docket segment of the podcast. If you think we left out any movies, and trust me, I know there's a lot, send in your email, send in your comments to the Shana Podcast email address, evan at shinandivorce.com. To all the listeners, thank you for listening. You can find the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, and wherever else you listen to your podcast. Follow me on social media. I'm everywhere. Check out all episodes of the podcast on my website and read my latest blogs featuring our terrific guest, shineandivorce.com. I'm Evan Shine, and we'll talk to you again real soon.